what we do on our Wednesday night Bible studies is we take uh, a particular book of the Bible, we go through it verse by verse, trying to put it all in context so that we walk away with a greater understanding of the scriptures uh, so that we can grow in, in our faith as a result. Really understanding what the Bible really says and not so much just what somebody else tells us it says. So I try and give you my insights and stuff, but at the end of the day, look at the scripture, read it for yourself. That's why I encourage you, bring your Bibles on Wednesday nights so you can actually look and see if it's saying what I'm saying it says. And you can look behind and look, read ahead and read it in context and see if in fact what I'm saying to you uh, sounds right on and if it's the truth. Which is very important because we're going to pick it up where uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, we're in the 6th chapter now, verse 3, where he's talking about guys who don't teach the truth. Guys who would come into the church and they would get into all kinds of quarrels and arguments about stuff and arguments about words. Well, what does this word really mean? And uh, There's all kinds of people like that who try to take the scriptures and twist them to make them into saying something that they don't really say. And you've always got to be careful about that. If anybody ever comes to you and takes a verse and starts to explain to you that in the Greek it really means this, and by the time they're done it doesn't really say what you're seeing it says, and you can read other translations and none of those translations agree with what this guy's saying, ignore the guy. He's an idiot. Because a lot of people will twist scriptures trying to make them say something that they're not. Uh, just to uh, advance their own uh, agendas. And You know, I, <laughs> I remember when I was... Uh, <clears throat> A young guy when I first gotten saved, I was still, a, you know, just coming out of the whole hippie culture. I was 16 years old, and uh, you know, the whole drugs and stuff like that. And I remember a lot of guys were going around quoting the scripture from uh, the book of Revelations, where Jesus said, "To him that overcomes, I will give to him a white stone." And <laughs> these guys were going around and saying, "Well, what he's really talking about is it's really a pill, and that it's okay for us to take pills and take drugs, and it's you know, it's just, which is just." insane. But it's like people, they don't take the Bible in context. They find little tiny things and try and twist it into saying something. It's really not saying at all. You've always got to be careful of that. And that's why we're trying to teach you the Bible and encourage you to read it verse at a time, put it in context. If it doesn't clearly say what someone says it's saying, beware. I'm always wary of that kind of stuff. Makes me crazy. Um, so let's pick it up. He says in verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he's conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies. A lot of guys just like to fight about stuff and some bizarre concepts and, and they, they like that stuff. Something feeds that in them. But it's an unhealthy interest. Be aware of that. And quarrels about words. You know, what do the words really mean? What does that verse really mean? And try and twist it into something that it's not. Uh, these all result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So at the end of this list of stuff, talking about these guys uh, that were corrupting the gospel, he ends criticizing with them uh, about their, their motives being financial gain. And Paul is always in the strongest of terms. I mean, he's really a nice guy. You read Paul, he's sweet, he's patient, he's kind. We're going to read... Uh, 
when we get into Second Timothy, how he, how he encourages him to be kind and gentle and stuff with the people. But boy, whenever he got to someone who was corrupting the gospel, he was anything but kind and gentle. Remember, this is the guy in Galatians told these guys they ought to go to hell for, for the corruption that they're creating in the church. And whenever he talks about these guys, it's in the strongest of terms. Um, people who corrupt the gospel from what it was really intended. A lot of these guys do it, he says, because they think that godliness or, or faith or Christianity or whatever you want to call it is a way to get money. It's a way to make financial gain. And Paul warns against that. In verse 6, the very next verse, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. You want great gain? The great riches is being content. And I know it's hard for us, particularly in the culture that we live that is so consumeristic and we're always, boy, if I just had more money and if I just had this and, boy, pastor, if I could just get that and, boy, if I could just get that next job and, you know, if you're making $30,000 a year, you think, man, if I just, if I could just make $45,000, I'd be happy. And then you're making forty-five, dollars man, if I could just make sixty, dollars I'd know I'd really have it. And you make sixteen, you really, it still doesn't do anything. It's, man, before you really, I mean, you have to make so much money before it starts making any humongous difference. It's ridiculous. Because of the, especially in our culture with the taxes and everything, the way it is. You got to take such huge jumps to make such little progress. But uh, people constantly, they're never happy. They're thinking that if they get this other stuff, this will bring me contentment. No, that's not what's going to make you happy. What's going to make you happy is just being content with what you're, where you're at. Being content in the blessings that you have. That is great gain, Paul says. You really want to feel like you're rich? Be happy with where you are. Um... And he goes to explain that. He says in the next verse, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Duh. You came in naked, man, you're checking out pretty much the same way. There's, you, taken, you brought nothing with you, you're not taking anything out, there's no such thing as a, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer to the grave with all their possessions and their big screen TVs and whatnot. I mean, once you're dead, man, you're, you're checking out of here. He says, if we have food and clothing... We will be content with that. What is he trying to encourage people? Says, Even with the most basic of things in your life, learn to be content. Man, he said, if I just got food and clothing, I'm a happy boy. People who want to get rich, which is a, a large group of people who really want to be rich, what happens to them? They fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Godliness is not a means to financial gain. A lot of people that, you know, boy, you know, sometimes you listen to some of these preachers on TV and stuff that, uh, they're trying to preach faith. They consider themselves faith preachers. Uh, And they really preach, boy, if you really have faith, you'll have lots of money. Uh, And I'm not sure how they get there. You know, I I, kind of see what they're doing, but they got to be careful because it sounds to me like they're preaching godliness as a means to financial gain. You know, if you do God's way, you'll have lots of money. Uh, no, that's not what Christianity is about. It's, Jesus didn't come to die to make us all uh, millionaires. Uh, it's, it's just, it's not about that. Oddly enough, having said that, the funny thing about it is if you actually do live by God's principles, you probably will be more financially blessed than in any other way of your life. It's really kind of a funny thing. On the one hand, he's saying, look, faith is not about getting money. That's not what it's about. That's what he's saying very clearly here. And he says, be content with where you're at. But without question, as you study the Bible, if you will, in fact, 
honor God and do things God's way and put God first in your life financially, you will be blessed. You will have more than enough. I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of a funny thing. It almost seems contradictory here, but it's really not. He's talking about a contentment of heart. Faith isn't about getting money. It's not about, you don't come to Jesus so you can make more money. Somewhere. You don't come to Jesus so you can be better off financially. You come to Jesus because you need to repent of your sins. And you trust him to cover your sins in your life and, and, and give you his grace. That's what faith is about. And uh, in that faith, we need to be content with whatever our circumstances. But here's the odd thing. When you get really content in your circumstances, even if they're not so good, that's when God can change your circumstances. It's the craziest thing. I mean, it's really the key to success. It's really the key to success in faith. Is, you know, you get something, some lousy circumstance comes in your life, and we all deal with that. I mean, at times, icky things happen to us, and we go through all kinds of trials and tests, and sometimes it might be God testing us, sometimes it might be, uh, you know just life sometimes because we're idiots and we do stupid things and we get ourselves in trouble that's usually my problem uh, and you get in a bad place and and it's very easy to start getting into a situation where you feel like I can't be happy God God I can't be happy unless this changes if you get to a place where you're not happy until something changes you're in the wrong place you need to be happy even if nothing ever changes you need to be content Knowing that you, your relationship with God is all that matters in any circumstance. And amazingly, when you get into that place, that's when the circumstances change. Every major miracle in my life I have ever experienced, and there's been some, some pretty incredible ones, always came when I, got, when I would get to that place of saying, you know, Lord, if it never changes... That's okay. If, if this thing, if, this, if I'm stuck in this situation for the rest of my life, if, if it costs us our lives, whatever the deal is, if I'm going to be broke the rest of my life, I don't care. I'm truly joyful and thankful for what you have done in my life. And it's when you get into that place and, and see what happens when you do that, then the fear goes away. See, because when I have bad circumstances we don't like creates fear. And then fear creates panic. And then you try to pray to trust God to get rid of the thing. Well... It's, you're, you're canceling out your prayer. You can't have faith and fear at the same time. You've got to be able to neutralize the fear. And the way you can neutralize the fear is get to a place that says, Hey, I don't care if it never changes. I will not be afraid. I will not be discouraged. I'm not going to give up on my faith. If this situation never changes, I'm still going to serve God. And love Him and celebrate Him. You get to that place of contentment. That's what it's about. And then, amazingly, the circumstances start to change. That's when God does start changing things. That's when God does start blessing you financially. That's when things do start turning around in your life. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, he will do it. But you have to be focused on him through the whole process. It's kind of like, uh, you know, we need to be in love with the giver, not the gift. You know, if, if, uh, if I give my kids something and they love that thing I give them more than they love me, then that's a bad place. And in God's situation, totally unacceptable. God says you will not have any other gods before me. The minute you put something more important than God, then God can't bless your life. When you can truly communicate to God and God can see that you get your joy from Him, and not just from the gifts that He gives, that's when He starts giving the gifts. It's, it's just an, it's a kind of a paradox. There's a lot of paradoxes in faith. It's like when Jesus said, the only way to have life is to die. It sounds contradictory, wouldn't you say? 
But it's not contradictory. It's just the paradox of faith. The way up, Jesus said, is the way down. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? You have to be the servant of all. I mean, everything that's... It's, it's like it's... Whatever the world does is, is, is just do the opposite. And usually, that's the spiritual way of doing things. You know, you want to climb to the top. You want to be the most, uh, you know, uh, uh, aggressive, ambitious person. Well, that's how you get to the top in business. That's how you get to the job, uh, top in most jobs. But the top in the kingdom of God is the way down. Again, it doesn't make any sense. But the more you humble yourself, the more you're willing to serve, the more you're willing to say, God, I don't care if I just clean toilets, sweep the floors, you know, whatever. The more humble we are, that's when God starts lifting us up. The more that we serve. It's uh, so many of those kinds of things here in the Bible. And I know that uh, at times it can be a real challenge to get through to our heads, especially if you're pretty young in your faith, to understand some of these concepts. But, uh, you know, you've got to be content with what you have, with where you're at. Um, don't. God didn't come just as a way to give you more money, but as you trust Him, He will bless you. He will. Lots of promises in the Bible will bless you financially. But Christianity is not about just getting money. Uh, and He goes on to explain, He says in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. A lot of people say, well, money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's not what it says. Look at what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If money itself was the root of all kinds of evil, then none of us should have it. We should get rid of it. I mean, if money itself is evil, and the more money you got, then the more likely you're going to be involved in evil, then we need to just get rid of all the money we possibly can. Uh, That's not what he's saying. Uh, you can have a great deal of money, quite frankly. You could have millions of dollars and still not be involved in evil, not be uh, in a bad place, not be out of the will of God. You can be right smack dab in the will of God and have tons of money. Uh, I believe God blesses lots of people with great resources because they're faithful and they, they're, they're faithful to give and to invest in the kingdom of God. But it's not the money, it's the love of money. There are people who have, they're so in love for money itself. And, and when you start having a love for money and for stuff that you can get all the time, it will lead you in a very bad place. Some people, Paul writes, eager for money. And boy, how many people are eager for money? I mean, if, if we were to be real honest, that would be a lot of us. We need to be careful. Don't be so eager for money, because a lot of people who've been eager for money have wandered from the faith. Why? They start going after things instead of God. They start going after the gifts instead of the giver. That's the caution here. They've wandered from the faith and pierced themselves in the end with many griefs. Isn't that interesting? Chasing, chasing the very thing they think that'll take away all their griefs is the very thing that gives them. All kinds of griefs. Again, more paradoxes. But anyway, he writes to Timothy, he says, But you, man of God, flee from all this. Run from that junk. And pursue what? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And I'll tell you what, if a lot of us would work as hard for spiritual principles as we do for things and money, we'd be a lot more blessed in our lives, a lot more successful in our spiritual life. That's for sure. Instead of pouring all your energy into getting stuff, he says, Timothy, pour your energy into getting stuff that's right. Godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. He tells him to fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Interesting verse there where he says, take hold of eternal life. 
uh, a lot of people keep uh, kind of a lackadaisical attitude, really way too lax of an attitude, I think, today, for a lot of people in faith. They think just because they prayed a prayer, that that's all there is to it. Uh, they keep living any way they want to live. They keep a lot of them just keep living in complete sin and destructive habits and doing things that are completely contrary to the Bible. But they they, they don't think there's anything wrong with it. You know, you, you'll even confront them sometimes, and and they'll look at you and go, "Well, well, I'm saved. I, I, I said the prayer. I said the prayer. I believe in Jesus." Well, that's good. It's good to believe in Jesus and, and make your profession of faith. But man, you it's not you can't just slide into heaven. Man, you need to have an attitude of aggressiveness for the things of God. That's why he tells Timothy, man, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. What do you do? That's talking about just grabbing something you really want. Somebody tries to take something from you, man, you're hanging on to it. Grab hold of. That's the kind of attitude, the energy we should have about the things of God. Having this attitude, man, to take, I'm going to fight for this. I want this. Uh, as opposed to the picture we have today of a lot of people who just figure out oh, there's nothing to it. I don't really have to do anything. I, I can sin. I can fornicate. I can commit adultery. I can get drunk. I, it doesn't really matter. I said the prayer. Said the prayer. Well, I'm telling you, if that's your attitude, you're in a bad place. And you may not make it at all. I promise you, not everybody, Jesus said, who says, Lord, Lord, will get into heaven. Not everybody who just says the prayer is going to get into the kingdom of God. Why? Because there's more to it than that. You have to have this attitude of a desire for God. He who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, Jesus said. This is the guy who will get filled. This is the one who will be satisfied. Those who have this desire of reaching out and hanging on to the things of God. Uh, pretty cool stuff. And then he says, talking about this, he says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good profession or confession in the presence of many witnesses. What's he talking about? Uh, clearly, at some point in this young man's life, he stood in front of people and said, I choose to serve God. I choose to believe in Jesus Christ. I put my faith in him. Now, um, you know, because, just because of the culture in, in which we live today, we've, we've made it so much easier for people to pray the prayer. You know, it used to be we'd make people stand up, raise their hands, stand up, come down to the front, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, you know, and but the powerful thing about doing that was that they were making a confession in front of many people. There is this attitude, there, there is this part of faith. It's more than just a prayer. It's more than just getting the book later in the back and stuff like that. That's okay, those are starting points. But at some point, you have got to be able to say to people around you, I am a Christian. I choose to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, you know, and you kind of hide it, and you, you know, Jesus says, talk about people who try to stick their, their light under a bushel. You know, that's when you're going to lose it. Uh, there is a point of, of faith. And again, uh, one of the reasons I don't have people come up and do that is, is uh, I have a fundamental problem with uh, people who think that salvation in and of itself just occurs in one false swoop, you know. Uh, in the Bible, they never had altar calls. They didn't pressure people to bow their heads and come forward and do all these kinds of things. And, you know, people at some point, they came forward and said, I believe, or what do I have to do to be saved? I mean, these, 
so, so when we do it in our church, we try to make it easy for people. We explain faith to them. We give them that initial prayer. We give them the book to help them get started. But these are just starting points. At some point, real salvation comes in when it dawns on them. My hope is in Christ. I cannot do this on my own. And they make this bold profession to those that are in their world. I choose to be a believer in Jesus Christ. This is when uh, true salvation comes. Okay? Um, and then he encourages them. Along these lines, he says, In the sight of God who gives life to everything and to Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, you know, Jesus proclaimed to Pilate, Pilate said, Are you really the king of Jews? He says, Yes, I am. He said who he was in front of the highest authority of the day. Jesus didn't hide that. Even though for the most part throughout his interrogations he was quiet. Whenever someone would accuse him, he didn't say a word. The scribes and Pharisees made all kinds of accusations. He didn't say a word. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, the Bible said. He kept his mouth quiet. But when pushed, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Are you the King of the Jews? He said, yes, I am. So he said, just like Jesus who did this, he says, I charge you to keep this commandment, this command, what command? Of fighting the good fight, of holding on to uh, eternal life when you made this great profession of your faith. Um, So I I charge you to do this without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. (laughs) We're still waiting. Someday this is all going to be over. The, the, The... situation on this earth is going to come to a screeching halt. Someday Jesus Christ is literally going to come back to this planet and when he does then all of this will be over. When will it happen? We don't know. Paul already is already encouraging them. You know, God will bring this about in his own time. Why did he have to say that? Because the early Christians particularly um, uh, you know they had a hard time with the fact that it wasn't happening quick enough. I mean, when, when Jesus told those guys, I'm coming back, they thought, you know, he's coming right back. You know, he's going to get some milk or something. He's going to come right back. I mean, they did not expect, in no way, I promise you, did the guys who lived this and wrote this and breathed this stuff, no way do they think it would be 2,000 years later and I would be ministering to you via video, which is something they've never heard of. Um... The farthest thing from their minds. And I think some of them, you know, in the beginning, they were so excited that he was coming right back. You know, in the book of Acts, you know, the Bible says the early Christians, they sold everything they had. They basically had this big commune. Everybody was just, let's just join all our money together. Why? You don't need your stuff. He's coming right back. All right. A lot of them, you know, gave up on their jobs. They just kind of sat around and worshiped God and praised the Lord and stuff. And then it started setting in, you know, this... <laughs> this isn't happening yet. We've got some time here. How come he's not back yet? And uh, uh, they had to get serious about getting out there and spreading the gospel and living this thing out. And we can't just all live in a big commune. And Paul wrote to them. He said, man, we've got to encourage our people to get jobs and start working. Why? Because a lot of people, well, why would you do that? I mean, let's face it. If you really knew Jesus Christ was going to come back in two weeks, how many of you would go to your job? Why? What a waste. He's coming in two weeks. He got enough money to last for two weeks. I mean, come on. Let's hang out. Let's worship God. Let's get ready. He's coming in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, it would just change your whole life. You'd sell stuff. you get rid of your property. I mean, who cares, you know? A lot of you would be happy because you wouldn't have to pay off your credit cards. Because <laughs> you're going to get out of here before the next billing cycle kicks in. But, I mean, that's the way these guys were thinking. And 
you know, it, it was quite the shock. And now, now Paul is writing to them, and already they start introducing this idea of, look, this will happen when God is ready for it to happen. He had no idea when it would happen. Jesus said nobody would know when it would happen. If you ever hear of anybody saying that they know when Jesus is coming back, I mean, I, I don't know how many of you were, uh, you know, serving the Lord back in the 80s, but, you know, there was this book that was going around, you know, so many reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1984 or whatever. I can't remember what the thing was about. But, you know, and so many Christians were excited about it. And they bought the book and they started doing these very things. Started selling off stuff and, and quitting their jobs. Why? Because Jesus is coming back on that day. Well, idiots, obviously he didn't come back on that day. I, I was in a church where there were people in the church all excited about this. I thought, hello, Earth to Mars. Jesus said nobody will know. So how can some idiot write a book and say, I know? And what's worse, how could a bunch of Christians go, yeehaw, here we go? Man, people, we've got to be smarter than that. If somebody comes along and writes some book and says, man, Jesus is coming back because I've discovered some word in here that really what it means is coming back in uh, uh, February of 2010. And you get excited about that and start handing out books, I will beat the snot out of you. Stick your head in the toilet and give you a swirly for crying out loud. Nobody knows. You will never know. Nobody will ever know. And and uh, only the Father knows. The Bible just says that we're supposed to be ready. Okay? So Paul says, look, God will bring all this about in his time when the Lord comes back. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, glorious light, whom no one has seen nor can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Then he goes on. He says, command those, talking about money again, command those who are rich in this world. Now, the difference here is, he was talking to people who weren't rich, who wanted to get rich. And he was warning them. Okay? But then, he says, let's talk to those who are rich right now. They're already there. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Why would they be arrogant? It's, it would be easy to be arrogant. Uh, and, and some people get that way that have lots of money. I, I say we're pretty blessed. We have a lot of people in the church here that have been financially blessed. And the thing I appreciate about their attitude is they're not arrogant. You know, we have very humble people here. I think if some of you knew who some people around you were that really did have quite a bit of money, you'd be shocked because you'd, you'd never guess it. Why? Because they're not arrogant and they're humble and that's the way that they should be. But sometimes people can get arrogant who have lots of money because it in a way kind of gives you power. Um, I dare say, you know, there's there's tons of churches. I was going to say the majority. I, 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 I can't say that, but... There's lots of churches where there are a handful of people who are the major donors to that church. They know that they are the major donors to that church. They know that everybody else knows that they are the major donors to that church. And they know the pastor knows that they are the major donor to that church. And they carry this arrogance about them because uh, they have money. And because they have money, you, you need to listen to what I say. Because I don't think we should get blue carpet. We ought to get green carpet. And everybody freaks and fears because they can't get this guy mad. 
Why? Because he's the major giver to the church. And the truth is, the guy bails, the church is in the toilet, and they're big, 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 big trouble. And uh, and they get arrogant and proud, and they start assuming more authority and decision power in the church than they should have just because of their financial position. And Paul says, look, tell these guys who are in your churches, who do have money, man, don't be that way. Don't ever have an attitude that you get to have more of a say in the church than someone else. Because if I don't get my say, I'm pulling my money out of here and I'm the big dog on the block. You know, we just, again, thank God I don't know of anyone like this in our church. And we've got a pretty big church. And uh, we are blessed that we have some one, got people who have been wonderfully blessed by God who are great financial people. But uh, I've, I've never had a one. Ever, uh, even when I was back uh, as an associate pastor here many, many years, uh, years ago, uh, never heard of anybody pulling that kind of power. Who said, "Well, I, I give. I'm a big giver to this church, and I ought to get to do what I want to do." You know, I've had people who walk around and say, "I'm a member of this church, and I should have a big say." <laughs> you know, and of course, you know, I holler people just for that. But uh, we've been blessed. We have wonderful people of wealth here that are humble. So he tells them, don't be arrogant and don't put your hope in your wealth, which is so uncertain, which is true. I mean, think about money, man. It can be here today, gone tomorrow. And and I'm certainly uh, sure that those who do have money have been as smart as they can in diversifying. Why, Why do you diversify your money? Because you're trying to protect yourself. Because if you have all your money and all your eggs in one basket, and that basket goes, you're busted. You got nothing. You know, if all your money's in a certain type of stock, and that stock crashes, you're broke. Uh, so one of the reasons that uh, people of wealth, if they're smart, and most of us I know are very smart, they diversify. They put their monies in lots of different kinds of investments. So if one toilets out, they still have have others. Why is that? Because there's there's no certainty. In money, uh, it can you know what would be of great value one day could be of no value at all. I mean, I, there's a lot of people in our country right now that are just panicking and freaking because of what's happening in the real estate market. I mean, the real estate market has been growing ridiculously uh, for many many years in our country, and uh, it's kind of hit the fan. And people who you know thought you know I got I got four hundred thousand dollars in this house because this house is worth. You know, I only paid 154, but now it's worth 400, and they're expecting it. And now all of a sudden, that drops out, and now it's only worth 300,000. I mean, that's <coughs> excuse me, that's uh, that's a lot of money all of a sudden gone just like that in in the market because prices have come down, and uh, a lot of people who were putting a lot of money in speculation, uh, taking mortgages out that maybe they shouldn't have. Today they're in a lot of trouble. Uh, foreclosures are on the rise, you know. And historically speaking, you say, you know, real estate, man, that's that's a solid, solid investment. But even that can go belly up. You just never know. I mean, bottom line, you got to put your hope and trust in God. Why? Because what else? You know, we we hold on to things so tightly. Like he's talking about early here, people who are thinking, you know, I I, I can get all this stuff. You know, you can't take anything with you. And not only do you know you can't take anything with you, it may not be here much longer anyway. I mean, what you're holding on to now might be gone. You know, you think you're always going to have your job? I mean, I hope you do. But you might not. 
what happens if all of a sudden whatever job you have uh, is eliminated? What are you going to do? I mean, for a lot of people, they would just freak and panic. I, I think all of us would freak and panic a little bit. You know, I, you know, always freak and panic for a little bit when, when something attacks me I'm not expecting. But boy, I can't stay there. We've got to get out. My hope and trust is not my job. My hope and trust is not whatever income stream that I have. My hope and trust is not in my investments, man, which few they may be. My hope and trust is in God. Ultimately, and, and see that, the beauty of that, the reason that brings peace is it can never be taken from you. It is the one thing no one can ever take from you. Your faith, your confidence, your peace that you have in God. They may take your things, they may take your family, they may take your freedom, but they'll never be able to take away that most precious thing of all. This wonderful connection we have with God. This hope and this empowerment and the power of God that, that he works in our lives through prayers and, and so many other things. That is certain. That will always last. That's where our hope has to stay. So he says, you know, tell the rich, put their hope in God who provides richly, who, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. There again, that's what I'm talking about, that uh, paradox. On the one hand, faith isn't about getting things. On the other hand, if you will trust God and not worry about things, what happens? God will give you everything that you need for your enjoyment, even stuff that you enjoy. A lot of times we think, well, God only gives what we need. Well, I hope not, because you don't need a lot. All you really need is oxygen and a little protein and some water. You know, we could throw you in a cell. I mean, God is more than just what we need. He says right here, he will provide with us everything for our what? Enjoyment. So he will bless us. If we try not to chase these things, then he actually gives us wonderful things. I'm more blessed in my life than I ever have been, uh, ever. And it's been wonderful and it's great. But God knows my heart. I've never chased these things. These things were not the most important things in the world to me, as much as I enjoy them and appreciate them. Uh, and if they're gone tomorrow, it would really stink. But, man, I'm still going to be praising God. I'm still, Because my hope is in Him. Hallelujah. Smart to put your trust in something that can never be taken away from you. It's foolish to put your trust and hope and all your energy into something that you could lose at any minute. And certainly you could die at any time and you can't take any of it with you. That's why we've got to use money and, 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 and stuff like this as wisely as we can. But boy, we've got to keep our energy, our thoughts, everything pouring into the kingdom of God. Because that is what's going to last for eternity. So, talking about these rich guys, then he says, command them to do good. What does that mean? To <laughs> do good things with your money. Uh, you know, and I certainly don't run around commanding these things out of out of our guys. The nice thing about it is there's a lot of people who've been wonderfully blessed uh, in our church. Uh, we don't have to command them to do good. Usually we just come to people and say, well, we really need help in a, in a, a certain area. God's given us this vision of this dream for something. And uh, various people step up who have uh, financial means and cover it so that we can do that kind of stuff. Which is great. I'm telling you, any church growing church, let me clarify that, any growing church can virtually never pull it off just on regular offerings and tithes. 
uh, if we just live just on the tithes and just the regular offerings, uh, and some churches do that, they just live in that world and they never stretch, because you can't. That usually just barely meets the most basic of budgets. Well, then how do we grow this thing? How are we continuing to grow and reach out and do some of the wonderful things that go? And we're just scratching the surface of what God's doing here. We haven't even been here barely a year yet. So we're still getting our feet and getting uh, our vision in place here to reach out and touch the world in the way that uh, we uh, believe God wants us to. But to do that stuff, really, that's when you need the above and beyond. That's where people will, some of you, I mean, a lot of you, you, you give to our Imagine campaign annually. Every year you'll say, you know, we're going to pledge X amount of dollars above our normal giving. And we normally give this much, but we're going to give above and beyond. Uh, why would you do that? Because we need that above and beyond to really grow out and do new things, to do anything significant. And thank God, I truly thank God, for those who are in our congregation who do have significant resources, and we can come to them and say, hey man, can you help us with this? Again, we don't, we don't command them to do anything specific. I will say that we should command them to do good. I mean, that's what Paul says to do. Uh, and he says, and to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And thankfully, that's certainly the case with uh, the people that I'm aware of in this church uh, are, are, are wonderfully generous. Um, and, uh, you know, and we don't pressure people. I mean, if, if I... If I've, at times we'll come to some guys I know who have resources and, and give a vision and stuff and they don't respond. We don't get mad at them. I mean, you know, you, you can't get mad at people for not buying into your vision. I don't think they're cheap or anything like that. I just figure they, they don't see the vision or, or, or whatever. Because our, our guys are, are pretty great. They do have a desire to be uh, willing to share uh, out of the resources that they've been blessed with. Why would you do that? Because in verse 19 he says, In this way... They will lay up treasure for themselves, which is exact treasure for themselves where? In heaven. He's talking about eternity. Obviously, if you take money from here and give it to something, that's not laying up treasures here. That's emptying the treasures here. But in doing that, you're laying up treasures in heaven. You're investing uh, into eternity. So they'll be able to do that for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Praise God, it's coming. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Then he says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Again, he doesn't give a specific. I don't know exactly what he's talking about, what they, the kind of issues that they had uh, you know, during that time that they would chatter and, and stuff like that. But you, if you've been around Christianity very long, you will hear stuff. You'll hear people chattering and arguing and chasing their tails over some of the dumbest things, you know, and spiritual revelations, or I got this new Bible study, or I got this new thing, and they're all over the place, you know. He says, man, just, let's just focus on Jesus. He says, some of these people have professed it and so have wandered from the faith. They get so busy chasing some of these other ideas, uh, they actually wind up losing out with God in the end. And his final word to Timothy in, uh, in this first letter is just grace be with you. Alright, so there, that's First Timothy. Maybe this week, let me encourage you to go back, just read through it. Get a sense of it, just, just a straight reading and, and kind of like how they would have read it uh, back then. And, and hopefully it will make a lot more sense to you. Uh, we're going to pick it up. 
Uh, we just got a couple of more minutes here, but we'll go ahead and get started with 2 Timothy. So we're going right in from, from the one to the second one. This is the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Again, it's the same kind of stuff. A uh, little more specifics uh, will, will vary here. But uh, the basic idea, again, he's writing to this young guy of faith and who's, who's in the ministry and, and this new thing called the church. I mean, we have such a huge advantage because we've got 2,000 years of history of the church and how to do this. And, you know, in so many ways, we should be so much further ahead. Uh, certainly these guys, this was all new to them. There was no such thing as a church when they were first doing this. There was nothing. I mean, when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, what's truly amazing is how quickly that happened. And when he said he was building this church, these guys went from nothing to creating such a powerful force in one generation that changed the world. I mean, they were known as world changers. In the book of Acts, it talks about those, those who have turned the world upside down have come hither also. I mean, these guys were going everywhere. They were organized. It was power. They had pastors in places and elders and, and this whole structure that we call to the church. Man, you couldn't come up with a business plan this smart, what these guys did. It was amazing, and it was God doing the work in them. Jesus said, I will build my church. He didn't take 2,000 years to build it. Man, that thing was built. Boom. Supernaturally. And these guys were doing these things, something that had never been done before. And what we still do is look back to what they were doing. It's still our reference, 2,000 years later, what these guys did almost immediately because of what Christ was doing through the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. It's just a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. Well, actually, I've rattled so much about that, I guess I'll stop here because uh, <laughs> we won't have time. We'll pick it up next week. Uh, We'll just start with 2 Timothy and uh, pick this up and, and, and move on. And I uh, look forward to seeing you then. God bless.